0: 1 Corinthians 15, last Sunday we celebrated Easter and came in the Lord's kind providence to 1 Corinthians 15, the locus classicus, the the best known biblical exposition of the doctrine of the resurrection, both Christ's and our own. What a wonderful providence that is, uh, that we came on that on Easter. But every Sunday is Easter in this sense. Uh, Christians in scripture took up worshiping God on Sunday, on the first day of the week rather than the last day because uh, it was on the first day of the week that Christ rose from the dead and emerged from his grave. So every Lord's day, every Sunday is resurrection day. And we do well to continue in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 for another reason, you may not know this because we're not accustomed to watching the liturgical calendar very closely, at least not in this church, but uh, every Sunday, from last Sunday up to Pentecost Sunday, uh, which falls this year on May 4, is part of what's called, on the church calendar, the Easter season. If we were to mark the heading in our bulletin today, the way that we do uh, for the weeks of Lent uh, leading up to Easter, or for the weeks uh, of Advent uh, as we did leading up to Christmas, the heading in the bulletin today would say the second Sunday of Easter. There are seven Sundays in the Easter season uh, that punctuate the, that 50 days Between Christ's resurrection from the dead and Pentecost, the celebration of the appearance of the Holy Spirit, uh, visible and audible in uh, Jerusalem, at least by way of signs, as recorded in Acts 2. Of course, the most important reason to continue in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning is that there's simply too much for us here to have captured last week in our sort of flyover of the entire chapter. So, uh, we begin our more, uh, our closer looking look at 1 Corinthians 15 with the first 11 verses this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is so rich and so full, and you have shown us so many marvelous things in your law. We can never plumb its depths, but we pray that you will Reveal to us what you intend for us to receive from these verses this morning. And we know that your word will have success in us because you've said and you've promised that it will. We rest on and call upon you to fulfill that promise now in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That should sound familiar to you because we just sang that very line in the Nicene Creed. And verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I had worn a thrift store Green Bay Packers jacket in grade school, and their unmistakable green and yellow stocking cap in high school, but I had no idea that I would be marrying the Packers in college. I did. You know uh, how they say that uh, when you marry a girl, you, you marry her family. Well, when you marry a Wisconsin girl, you, you marry the Packers. And uh, Vince Lombardi becomes your famous in-law. And that's okay, uh, because sometimes your in-laws actually bring some extra richness into your life. And this is the wisdom that the legendary Packers coach brought to mind. It is this single line Gentlemen, (laughs) you know it by heart. Gentlemen, this is a football. Those were opening words, the opening words of the opening speech of the opening season of every preseason training period, those five simple words, as he held the pigskin before that group of men who knew the football better than any other human beings in the world. Gentlemen, this is a football. Lombardi started every season by going back to the basics, way back to the basics, time and time and time again. And some believe that it was that approach, among a few other factors, that caused him to be one of the winningest coaches in football history. Well, here comes another relative of mine and of yours in Christ, the Apostle Paul, saying, brothers, this is the gospel. To a Christian church whom He himself had led to Christ with the gospel, to whom he had preached and proclaimed the gospel, had discipled in the gospel, who knew or should have known the gospel. He writes, I would remind you, brothers, and of course, by implication, sisters of the gospel. Isn't that what we do here every week in this house? Of worship, week after week after week, the entire service, in case you haven't noticed it before, you will now. The entire worship service, every Lord's Day, is simply a recapitulation of the gospel. Our liturgy is purposefully designed that way, so that no matter what the sermon may be about that week, by the time worship is over, Everyone in attendance from visitors to members has heard and seen the basic gospel either for the first time or for the umpteenth time. But oftentimes the sermon too comes back to the basic gospel as Paul does here. Why? Well, because we need to hear it over and over and over again. Scripture knows this, knows and teaches us that repetition is good and important for us, especially the repetition of the gospel, the good news. That's what gospel means of salvation through Christ, which Paul says in verse 3 is of first importance. Now, I titled the sermon in the bulletin The Resurrection Gospel, not because the gospel is only about the resurrection, but because that is the point of the gospel on which Paul is... Going to lay the emphasis here in 1 Corinthians 15, and it's therefore the point that we'll emphasize uh, not just today, but Lord willing, in the weeks to come. In fact, uh, I will prepare you already and plead for your patience. These 11 verses are so rich, we're simply going to have to return to them next week. But uh, we will do well rather than rushing to the resurrection be reminded by Paul of the basics of the entire gospel and Paul gives that to us in three points first Christ died for our sins Christ died for our sins now you know that don't you You, you've you've heard it said more times than Brett Favre has thrown a Hail Mary across Lambeau Field, right? But that doesn't mean that these familiar words have become unremarkable, nor certainly that we've exhausted the meaning of them. Christ died for our sins. Why? I had a man ask me that very question just a couple of weeks ago. He said to me, flat out. He said, why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just have forgiven our sins since he is, as you say, a forgiving God? I don't criticize him for asking the question. It's a fair enough question to ask. I couldn't blame him for asking such a thing. So I I had to help him to think this through together, just like the Lord does with us so gently and Wonderfully. Let us reason together. What is sin? Christ died for our sins. What is sin? Sin is our treason against God. What are sins? Sins are our individual acts of treason against God, they're the specifications that are listed on the indictment that is written against us. All the times that we effectively shook our fists, have shaken, continue to shake our fists in God's, hand, uh, in God's face and say, I don't care what you say, this is my life, and proceed to break the good and righteous laws that God has written for us. Now, the treason started in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? When Adam and Eve broke God's very first law, his first commandment. And we've been breaking them ever since, treasonous creatures that we are. And since these are the laws of our maker, the one who has made us, the one who created us, and because our maker is just, he is a just God, like any judge, like any just judge He must punish sin. He must apply the penalty for your sins and my sins for our sin to someone. But whom? Well, in this matter of sin, there are two parties involved. God and us. It really comes down to that, doesn't it? Two parties. The sinners and the sinned against Someone was going to have to suffer the penalty for our sin. Someone had to pay the price. Someone had to undergo the punishment. And since there are but two parties, that someone boils down to one or the other. Us or God. That's it. Here's the wonder of it all. This is the good news of the gospel. God said... I will. I will take the penalty myself. I will pay the price. I will suffer the punishment in their place. Christ died for our sins. And for our sin. He, God the Son, having become true and genuine man, as we've confessed even here this morning, died for us and died by the way, means died. There's been a great debate about this, hasn't there? There have been many who said he just seemed to die. It wasn't some sort of passion play, my brothers and sisters, in which someone merely appeared to die. Jesus died. He suffered for our sins, including really and truly dying in our place not just appearing to die he died for our sin somewhere in there is the answer to that young man's question from a couple of weeks ago why couldn't god just you know forgive us by which i think he meant to say why couldn't god just sort of overlook the whole thing us act like it never happened and the answer is that forgiveness requires someone to suffer it always does think about this any to every time forgiveness is given by anyone to anyone someone has to suffer that's how forgiveness works someone has to absorb the effects someone has to suffer the penalty That is always the way. If someone hits your car in the Walmart parking lot, there's a price to pay. Now, normally, the person at fault is responsible to pay. But you may choose, if you like, you are free to forgive them, right? But what does that mean? Someone's going to pay. When you forgive the other person, what you're doing is saying, I will absorb the penalty. I will absorb the results, the effects of this on myself. And expand that a little bit. Think about the legal ramifications. Someone's going to be given a ticket for this violation that led to the collision. And even if it wasn't your fault, you say to the officer, I'll take the ticket. I'll take The penalty. Write that ticket against me. Even though it's not my fault. And that's exactly what God did. Only on a a cosmic, infinite, eternal, terrible, beyond words scale. He took the wrath for your sins on himself in Christ. And he did it in your place even to death. What that means is that he became our substitute. He took our place. He became our substitutional sacrifice. In his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott writes that substitution is at the very heart of the Christian message. The essence, Stott writes, the essence of sin... Is we, human beings, substituting ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. Where was that place we deserved to be? It was on the cross. I've been saying, but Paul goes on in what is something of a surprise, actually, a remarkable line in the Bible. He adds, second, Christ went to the grave. Is that not what we deserve? We deserve to go to the grave and to remain in the grave for Christians who've come to understand, have grappled with the gravity of their sin. They know this. But why mention this here? Why mention the grave? Well, before we we answer that question, it's worth noting that what Paul has written here in in, uh, verses, it has been noted, is likely a sort of, in these verses, a sort of a primitive creed that the Christians had already been using as, a, as an encapsulated expression of their faith, just like we did a few moments ago. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to, in accordance with the scriptures. We use the creed, I say, to confess our faith too. Christians have been using these these shortened, uh, boiled-down expressions for centuries and centuries. And we recalled this morning in our creed that he was buried. In fact, we paused, remember? Musically, we paused at that point to underscore and was buried. Or maybe to underscore the effect of the next thing. Maybe that's why we paused musically to underscore what came next. On the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. The resurrection with musical emphasis to counterpoint the burial. Perhaps that is exactly what Paul is doing here. And, and what the ancient creed did that he's quoting as well. It laid the emphasis on the resurrection by, by using the grave as a foil against which the resurrection shines all the more brilliantly. At at the very least, it certainly confirms the reality of what comes before and what comes after, doesn't it? Of Jesus' death and his resurrection. One commentator puts it this way. He says, "If, if he was buried, he must have been really dead. If he was buried, the resurrection must have been the reanimation of a corpse if he was buried and was subsequently seen outside the grave the grave must have been empty and may well have been seen to be empty so Christ's burial is a bridge isn't it here in this text it's a it's a bridge of sorts that confirms the realities that it connects at each end of that bridge. Jesus died. How do we know he died? How do you know that Jesus died? How do you know that he actually gave up his spirit and did not simply faint or you know go into some sort of a swoon, into a temporary coma? Well, because they buried him. Because they buried him in a tomb. Now you say, Well, what kind of proof is that? Haven't you ever heard of someone being buried alive well of course we have but that jesus was dead and therefore buried is certainly very well attested for for one thing the roman soldiers they were skilled in this matter of death they were professionals at death the coroners at the cross they went to break jesus legs you remember why because they wanted these macabre dealers in death. They wanted Jesus to die early. They wanted him to, to, to die there on the cross in their time. But, but they didn't break his legs. Why? Why did they stop short? Because they could see he was dead. These experts at death knew he was dead. Then Joseph of Arimathea secured permission from Pilate to take down Jesus' body and bury him. Now, do you think Joseph of Arimathea could have been mistaken? No way. And Nicodemus joined him in binding Jesus' body with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes in linen cloths. No, no, there is no mistake here. When they put Jesus in the tomb, he was dead, and everybody knew it. By the way, it was also a fulfillment of the scriptures. It was, uh, Paul points out twice, the cross and the resurrection, According to the scriptures, well, this burial was also according to the scriptures. Remember Isaiah 53, 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. He took our sins, my brothers and sisters. He took your sins to the grave. Remember John Bunyan's wonderful... uh, Allegory is dream about the pilgrim Christian in pilgrim's progress, running the way of salvation, but still struggling under the burden of sin. He He comes to the cross, the load still weighing him down. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell off his back and began to tumble. And to tumble and continued to do so till it came to the mouth of the grave where it fell in. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Apart from the gospel writers, only Paul mentions Jesus' burial just a few times. But he makes the point, as we heard just this morning from Romans 6. He repeats it in Colossians We were buried with him. When Christ was buried, we were buried. We were buried with Christ in our baptism. But he didn't remain in that tomb. Nor did we remain in that tomb. He rose. And that's the the third point of the gospel. Christ rose from the dead. And though the nuance is lost to us in the English translation, the Greek tense of the verb here makes us notice that he continues to live. He is risen and he continues to live this resurrected life, past action, ongoing consequence. His conquest over death on our behalf, his life of intercession for us continues even now. His priesthood, his kingship continues. He is on the throne in heaven reigning, but he's also interceding for us. Remember Wesley's wonderful words, five bleeding wounds he bears received at Calvary, right? And there they cry, for us, there they issue their plea. Forgive them, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. This, dear flock, is the gospel. This is the gospel, and it is, Paul says, of first importance. I'm no more ashamed to come back to it again and again and again in this pulpit than Vince Lombardi was to start every season with, this gentleman is a football. We need to keep this grounding, my brothers and sisters. Why? Well, Because the gospel is not just something we received in the past and have now moved on to bigger and better things. Remember how Paul started in verse 1 Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The gospel is as fundamental to us as the football is to the running back. It, It hardly matters. It doesn't matter a whit, as a matter of fact. How fancy a running back can can make his moves or plays, his speed and sprinting down the field, or his agility. Without the ball, it's useless. Without the ball, it's nothing. And a Christian who has dropped the ball, a Christian who has forgotten the gospel no matter how magnetic they may be, no matter how impressive ministers who have forgotten the gospel, no matter how great their pulpit expertise and rhetoric, no matter how successful any of us may appear, we might as well be running in the opposite direction. To the opposite. What's the end of the field called? The End zone, right? To the opposite team side. If the church loses the gospel. When the church loses the gospel. For alas, she has so many times. And so many churches have. No matter how flashy her programs. No matter how popular her message or devout her adherence to a set of rules and traditions. She's holding a handful of dust. If that much. Christians who lose the gospel once delivered to them are are to, to be pitied above everyone else. More pitied than anyone because having had the ball... Having had this great treasure and then losing it is so much sadder than never having had it at all, isn't it? With whom do you grieve the most? The running back who misses the pass by a mile or the one who carried it across the field only to fumble it right on the three-yard line? How do Christians lose that great treasure? How do we drop the ball of the gospel? Well, take heed and take warning. There are many ways that this happens. One is when Christians begin to think themselves you know, a bit too sophisticated for the gospel. Having started with the basics, they, they begin to get caught up in, in the world's philosophies and ideas, worldly patterns of thought. Some scientist tells them, That the idea that anyone should rise from the dead is just stupid. It's ridiculous. Foolishness. Or an academician tells them that the idea that God's justice should require the shedding of blood is not only ridiculous, but repulsive. Divine child abuse, they like to call it. And not wanting to be embarrassed in such sophisticated company. They drop the ball and pick up whatever shiny but worthless object the world has just thrown at them. They become too sophisticated, or or some begin to think themselves sufficient without the gospel. Looking at their lives, comparing themselves with others, they find that, as a matter of fact, (laughs) I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. They set up a list of standards, you see, by which to measure themselves. Not God's law, mind you. Oh no, not God's law. But, but a set of laws that some of them even sound a little bit like God's law. But they're their own laws, their own standards, which are easily achievable. Standards they can meet. And in their minds, do. By their own strength. And by and by, they don't think themselves to be very needy at all. Well, what grief for a Christian who no longer believes himself that needy. In fact, comparing themselves to others, they come to think that God should be pretty happy, as a matter of fact, to have them. Am I exaggerating? I wish I were. They congratulate themselves for their doctrinal positions. Ooh, (laughs) Parsons gone to meddling, hasn't he? So much superior to those of the church down the road. For their adherence to a set of rules. Stricter, just a little stricter than the next church you see. Of course, such Christians and such churches become soon become very bitter, very judgmental, and eventually can't even get along with themselves. But never mind that. They are sufficient, you see. They are self-satisfied. They've dropped the ball. But then there are, are those Christians who, like one of you, said to me in the Narthex just uh, several weeks ago... Christians who know that they need the gospel every day, all the time, who truly are, as Paul says in verse 2, being saved by the gospel. You see, the ongoing work of the gospel in our lives, we are being saved. The gospel is not just some sort of fire insurance that we got Uh, you know, in the past that we bought so many years ago when we did whatever, walked the aisle or were baptized, and now have moved on to better things. No, it is the life vest, the gospel is. It's the life vest that keeps them afloat every day A life vest that they must put on every day, day after day, knowing the desperation of the situation that the waves of the world and the flesh and the devil threaten to come over our heads every day and drag us down into the depths below. They return every day to the cross and every day to the empty tomb. And as a result, they proclaim them, or rather, they proclaim the Christ of that empty cross and of that empty tomb, Christ crucified and risen, not only to themselves and to their own souls, but unashamedly to the world they know to be just as desperately in need of this as they themselves are. Turns out, doesn't it, that That what Paul calls the thing of first importance is also the thing of lasting importance, of ongoing importance. Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ risen from the dead on the third day. What we need most, dear flock, is actually who we need the most. Christ, Christ, Christ. This deer flock is the gospel. Hold fast to it. Amen.